girls are complicated. Episode 42 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer, and with me today I have Nathan Gilmore of the Christian Humanist Podcast and CFP regular Marie Hawes. Hi, Nathan. Hi, Marie. Hi. Howdy. Uh, glad to have you both. So um, let's introduce ourselves for anybody who might be new to the show. Nathan, since you're our guest, kind of, you go first. All right, yeah, I guess I'm kind of a guest. I am Nathan Gilmore. I'm an associate professor of English over at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. I'm also one of the hosts of the Christian Humanist Podcast, which some of you might have listened to and others, I hope you try us out. Uh, I am living in Georgia. Uh, I've got two kids at home. Uh, you know, Mary, my wife, and I enjoy the life we're living. She's a middle school teacher. I'm a college professor, so... We are actually coming up on the part of the year where we have to start working again. Sounds great. Thanks, Nathan. Marie, tell us about you. Well, um, like you said, I'm a regular panelist at the Christian Feminist Podcast, and I am actually finally, really this time, finishing up my PhD in Renaissance Literature at Florida State University. I'm graduating August 6th, so um, that is done now. Yes. Um, and Hooray. I, yeah, thank you. <laughs> Good on you. Um, and I will, after this, be doing more graduate work, um, looking at a Master of Arts in Religion with a concentration on gender and sexuality. So that should be interesting. And not to step on your toes, but there's another big event coming up that you left out. Yes. <laughs> and I am also getting married right after I graduate. <laughs> yes, I'm leaving right after the graduation ceremony to go down to South America with my fiancé, Jonathan Cranston, and we're getting married down there with my family, zooming right back up um, to move to Connecticut. <laughs> Yay, that's so exciting. Lots of big, uh, lots of big happy things coming up for you. Yay, yes, thanks. <laughs> All right, so uh, before we get into today's episode proper, we got lots of listener mail uh, since last we spoke to you through the internet. So uh, I wanted to go over those a little bit. Uh, first of all, thanks to Joy and Kim and Aaron for writing in. We really appreciate it. Um, and I wish I could read all of these. Maybe we eventually should uh, take a page from the Christian Humanist playbook and, and just do listener feedback episodes um, periodically. But for right now, just quick summaries of these. Um, and I, I hope... Victoria, I, I, as long as you don't sucker punch your co-hosts while you're doing so. Not that anyone's ever done that on the Christian Humanist podcast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Network in-joke. Yes. So um, the first listener email we got um, is from Joy, and it's really long and really interesting. Um, it's a response to the Parks and Rec episode that we did um, a few months ago. And she basically hypothesizes that um, that Leslie Nope is, is kind of a darker, scarier character um, then lots of people give her credit for because she steamrolls over people. She's often very selfish. Um, and uh, Joy thinks that this underestimation is, is gendered, that, that Leslie Nope gets a better reputation that she deserves, um, perhaps because she's a smiley blonde woman, which I think is really interesting and maybe something we uh, should go into in a future episode. Uh, since we did the Breaking Bad episode, I was thinking about um, a, a kind of female anti-hero thing, maybe doing uh, an episode about uh, unlikable women in pop culture. Uh, so, so maybe we can maybe we can feed her thoughts into that. Uh, two more listener emails. 
uh, one from Kim, who was very nice, who said uh, she loves our show a lot and feels like uh, we are characters on a TV show she likes that she wants to be friends with, except real people, uh, which made me laugh a lot. Uh, <laughs> thanks for wanting to be our friend, Kim. Uh, you sound pretty great, too. Hope we get to talk to you more. And she suggests a show that, frankly, I think we should have done a long time ago on um, feminist pedagogy or Christian feminist uh, teaching methodology. We should we should definitely get on that. I think that does sound cool. Yeah, it's a really great idea. Um, she also sent us a, a number of sources uh, for that episode. She's done a lot of the work for us already, so we should uh, we should definitely put that on the full slate, maybe. And third letter we got is from Erin, um, who has like a couple of technical recommendations. Uh, she points out that our website's a little out of date, doesn't have bios for all of the Christian feminist contributors. Um, thanks, Erin, you're right, we should really work on that. We're going to get on it. Um, and she also says it's kind of hard to search the blog. Um, the only way I can think of doing that is that our episodes have a Christian feminist tag on them. But Nathan, you run the blog. Can you maybe give Aaron some advice there? Oh, goodness, Aaron. That's something I can probably work on. Right now, I would just say that the pull-down menu in the upper left corner does have a search bar on it. So if you search for the phrase Christian feminist, it should pull up the show notes for every episode. I don't know if that's what you're wanting to search for, but... Right now, that's where our search functionality is. Uh, if you want to email me at ngilmore at gmail.com, uh, let me know in a little bit more detail. I'd be happy to make changes to the website. I can maybe forward you her message, too, so you can get more specifics there. Okay, groovy, groovy. Right. We're on it, Aaron. We will make your web experience easier, we promise. Um, she also made a couple of episode suggestions. Uh she suggests that we might want to cover the women on the $20 bill uh, campaign and controversy. Um, she is the third or fourth panelist who has suggested we do a Beyonce episode, so I guess maybe we're going to have to do that, though uh, I just feel like that would be really hard to do. It may be interest though maybe yeah. interesting. There's just so many songs and albums, and I don't know. I and it's such commercialized feminism, which I know the Sectarian Review would like us to do an episode on commercialized feminism. So, so maybe that's <laughs> our tie-in there. Um, she also suggests an episode on the possibility of the first female president, since uh, that is getting ever more possible as the months go by. Uh, so good ideas, everybody. Thanks so much for writing in. We love it when you do. Um, we are, I promise, cataloging all your episode suggestions, and I'm sure you will see uh, some of them coming up in the fall. So with all that stuff out of the way, let's get into today's episode. So today we're going to be talking about um, the recent Ghostbusters remake directed by Paul Feig. Uh, I'm sure you've all heard there's been lots of uh, internet to and fro about this film. Um, it is a remake of the 1984 film, as I said, directed by Paul Feig of Bridesmaids and The Heat, and starring um, some really great female comedians, Melissa McCarthy, Leslie Jones, Kate McKinnon, and Kristen Wiig. Um, lots of controversies surrounding the film, a lot of uh, angry... I don't want to say gentlemen, because they're not. Lots of angry dudes on the internet claiming that this movie is ruining their childhoods, um, that it's a gimmick, that it's unnecessary. Uh, the movie has the most dis... or the trailer for the movie, rather, has the most dislikes uh, for any trailer in the history of YouTube. And also, um, even before the movie came out, uh, it had a really low rating on IMDb. Um, had uh, about a 4 out of 10 on average, though, uh, notably, those pre-film ratings um, were much higher for women. You separated out the genders. Uh, women rated the movie a 7.7 on average before the film came out, and men rated it a 3.6 uh, before the film came out. So possibly a telling set of statistics there. 
Um, Paul Feig, the director, did not like all this negativity. He called it misogynistic in an interview with The Hollywood Reporter before the movie came out. Um, also, some, some casting-related um, and, and um, part-related objections. Leslie Jones is the only uh, African-American Ghostbuster. She's also the one who's not an academic, not a scientist. Lots of people talked about that. Um, said they didn't like it, it wasn't fair, it was racist. Um, do you guys have any thoughts on sort of how loud and angry the run-up to the film was? Uh, it spilled onto my Facebook feed. Uh, so I kind of got to uh, look at it, you know, up close and ugly. Uh, a former student of mine who has a very particular flavor of right-wing politics uh, decided that when I really you know i thought put a an innocuous tweet that i went and saw the film it was fun i think that was the extent of my tweet is that what you remember victoria i'm pretty sure that's what you said that you went and uh i think you said it was enjoyable or fun or something totally innocuous yeah yeah and among other things he suggested that i should turn in my man card he posted screenshots from other people's facebook feed who really hated the movie and i'd I've never heard of these people who hate the movie, but they seem to be rather upset. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, just a, a, an outpouring of negative energy, which I guess is, you know, appropriate giving the, given the uh, Ghostbusters fandom and the emphasis on psychic energy as a force in the city. <laughs> um, nice. Marie, I mean, what, how much of this goofiness have you seen? Well, I was trying to avoid all these uh, bad vibes going on, but... Um, one thing in, I guess, the immediate follow-up uh, to the film's release rather than just the run-up to it, but that was particularly horrible. It's just all this hatred just leveled at Leslie Jones, especially on Twitter in, like, the past week or so, that whole situation. So, oh, it's just all very depressing. <laughs> oh, man. So awful. And not only... Like, to me, the kind of most hilarious thing about that, though darkly hilarious, is, like, not only were these people racist and sexist to the nth degree at her on Twitter, which is terrible, um, they were racist and sexist in, like, the most played-out, unoriginal ways ever. Like, you're gonna tweet this black woman pictures of gorillas because you think she's unattractive? Like, get better at being racist. It's just really stupid. <laughs> well, one thing I will say, Victoria, about the uh, Leslie Jones's character, uh, whose name is Patty Tolan, uh, she is she is the only only one of the four who's not a scientist. Uh, which, first of all, you know, I've, when I've read interviews with the producers and directors, they just said, "Well, I mean, that's kind of a mirror of the first Ghostbusters." Uh, but her character also has this encyclopedic knowledge of the history of New York, New York City. So in a lot of ways, she plays the knowing character next to the unknowing scientist. So in some ways, I mean, it, it's sort of a carrying forward of the slobs versus snobs vibe that animated the first Ghostbusters. Yeah, I thought that was true, too. And her... Yeah, her knowledge of the city is is really amazing, as you as you point out. So I I think that that's probably true. That it's less you know, why can't she be a scientist, and more like there are different types of knowledge that are equally valuable. Yeah, and I I, I don't think, and and you two can let me know if I'm getting this wrong. I don't think that it sort of lapses into the magical black character trope. I mean, I thought that she just had a different kind of knowledge, like Victoria said. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's like, why why does the one black character have to be the one that's differently knowledged, though? I mean, it could be any character. and um, I, I recognize, of course, the parallel with the original uh, casting, mm -hmm. um, but it seems like mm, it could have been... That, that kind of dynamic could have been reworked in terms of, I mean, they're, they're changing so much with the presentation of gender and the casting. Uh, why, is, why aren't they doing anything different in terms of there's just the one black character and she's pretty much this, well, going on with the stereotype of the sassy black woman and having this earthy knowledge, which is not bad in itself. It's just, mm, it, 
I don't know. I think there could have been something different. Are, are we calling historicized geography of an urban area earthy, though? Like, she's not making magic with roots and trees here. No, true, true. I was thinking more <laughs> of the parallel um, with uh, Winston Zedmore in terms of what was brought up on the uh, the Christian Humanist podcast episode on Ghostbusters talking about him as um, being... They said not tainted by academic study and being the man from the street and the stand-in for the audience. And I think we see those things going on with Patty Tolan too. Um, that that's sort of the um, that connection with the populace that is, is the uh, earthiness I was thinking of, rather than the historicized knowledge. Um, what I was think I, I thought watching it that she could have been perhaps like a paranormal historian and maybe somebody else could have been the stand-in for the audience. But yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. I guess I thought of that division as as more class than than racialized. Um, but but of course, I mean the ha having sort of differently classed coded as black is, is certainly not unproblematic. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. So I mean, I, I I think Marie's right here. I think that this is at the very least a clumsy bit of casting, and I'm I'm reminded of the rightful criticisms of the the star wars prequels when the you know the one unredeemably greedy character also had this gigantic schnoz and it's like oh people you gotta you gotta be careful yeah sure okay mm -hmm. um though i think <laughs> patty has that one joke right the one joke where she's she's crowd surfing and she gets dropped and she says oh man that I'm was not funny sure if that's a black thing or a lady thing but i'm pissed about it like so, I, yeah. I kind of thought that, that the inclusion of that joke, um, and and there were several other jokes that seemed to be meta commentary on the film's pre-reception. Um, I don't know. I thought that joke made it better a little bit. Oh sure. Okay, so um, should we say uh, anything else about? I guess we can we can talk about um, the remake in more detail in a minute. Um, what about mm -hmm. the 1984 film? What are you guys' um, thoughts on that? Did you like it when you were younger? Is it important to you? Nathan, what do you think? Well, I, I'm pretty sure I'm the oldest of this trio. I was seven years old when Ghostbusters hit the theaters, and because it had a PG rating, my parents took me to it. Uh, in retrospect, that probably wasn't a good idea now that I know what's in the movie. Uh, but it really was one of those movies in my childhood that I remember as giving me a mythology uh, because it is a movie about sort of malevolent forces threatening a community and it's not the people with muscles or with you know good land speeds that save the day but it's people who have weird ideas and can build machines and as a you know young kid uh, I did not have big muscles and I was not very fast in a sprint uh, but I could do math, and it, it, it became definitely one of my core mythologies as a child. So I, I'm, I'm definitely one of those middle-aged white guys who had a lot at stake in the Ghostbusters franchise. Um, and I say that not to justify the trolls, but to say that the trolls really missed the point in addition to being awful in other ways. Uh, yeah, that's a... That, that's... A series of great points. I think um, a, a lot of love that a lot of people have for the film comes from this kind of nerd as underdog power of science thing that you point mm -hmm. out. Oh yeah, well and I mean there's also the fact that I took my six-year-old daughter to it which might show a lack of judgment on my part. I'm willing to entertain that possibility. <laughs> uh, but now she wants to be a Ghostbuster uh, so, I mean, that's just one more cool thing that Miriam and I have together. So, I, I really love this movie because I love the 1984 movie, not in spite of it. Also, as, as Marie very kindly noted earlier, the uh, Christian Humanist podcast did a, uh, I, don't, I don't want to call it a review, an episode on the 1984 Ghostbusters on its uh, 30th anniversary a couple years ago. So, uh, as people will hear if they listen to that episode uh i was definitely the enthusiast of our quartet i am <laughs> i i really really love that movie i think the other three kind of tolerated the fact that i love that movie 
Well, that's cool. Uh, and and let's let's get Miriam a proton pack and take lots of pictures and show me. Cause I'm one thing I'm super happy about this remake is how many little girls want to be Ghostbusters now. I think that's amazing. Oh, believe me, I I I, I am lobbying hard for Halloween. Believe me. <laughs> yes. Yay, that's great. Marie, how about you? <laughs> uh, well, um. It was part of my childhood as well, and nostalgic in that sense, but I definitely don't have as uh, extreme, intense feelings of surrounding the original film as it seems that many, many people turn out to have. But, <laughs> um, but I will say it was a tape that we had um, in Bolivia, in South America, where I grew up with uh, my parents who were missionaries there. Um, so... I didn't have television to watch and of course didn't have the computer to watch anything on yet so I was just watching the, the films and the things taped off of TV that we had on tape in this giant video cabinet that we had and Ghostbusters was one of them so I saw it multiple times and starting at a young enough age for the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man to be very terrifying <laughs> to me <laughs> and those hellhounds too I, I would get scared watching it thinking about how it would be just such such existential horror if you had to sort of unintentionally imagine the form of your own doom and oh no it's the stay puffed marshmallow <laughs> 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 or if you're going to turn into this uh, this creature that you would then get burned to a crisp and you had to break out of it like you're coming out of this ugly burned dinosaur egg thing so it was pretty scary to me when mm -hmm. I was little and it was um it was so it's this fun film that I've watched at that age as a serious drama because everything is a serious drama when you're young. I mean the Adam Adam West Batman was a very serious drama to me when I was five. <laughs> um, and of course then I later watched it as a comedy um, in my later rewatches of the film and I still find it a lot of fun, of course, with the oh, just the dialogue, the jokes, the interactions uh, between the actors mm -hmm. and really the the pointless goofiness of the whole thing is something I really love about the 1984 film. Um, though I guess you guys in your in your Christian Humanist podcast pointed out some perhaps some deep, deeper messages going on in the film, but I I did not notice them when I was watching them in the past. So it's just that that well, was we're, fun. <laughs> well, we're English professors. We have to do that. Uh, I, uh, I certainly didn't notice any deeper messages uh, from the film when I watched it. I, uh, I was too young to watch it. Actually, not too young. Not born when it came out. Um, but I, I watched it um, later in the early 90s when I was about five or six. And um, I, I don't even remember goofiness. I just remember marketing actually. Um, my, mm -hmm. my Ghostbuster memories from childhood are entirely composed of action figures and ecto-cooler, uh, which has been re-released and is in grocery stores, and I will probably be buying some, so I guess that marketing worked. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't really remember, I mean, I remember enjoying the movie, and I remember being scared. Um, I also had nightmares about the state of Marshmallow Man, so I'm, I'm with you, Marie. Um, but I watched the movie a couple of years ago, I guess, um, before CHP uh, recorded the episode. We watched it um, at home, and one thing that really struck me that I think is markedly absent um, from the remake is how dirty the 84 film is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, that's that's something that really they took out of the 1989 film to a great extent, and I don't think that's the reason that it wasn't as good a film, but it was definitely noticeable. Um, so, so maybe that's our, our transition into talking about um, about the remake. What stuck out to you guys um, about seeing that film? Well, um, well, first of all, I guess I just enjoyed it a lot. So I went to see it with my sister, and we were just coming out of it laughing and so happy that we went back the next night to watch it again with our cousins. So we saw it two nights in a row. Um, and for me, I mean... Kate McKinnon's Julian Holtzman character is, you know, just the best. She really steals the show. And oh yeah, yeah, it's, it's McKinnon's movie, definitely. <laughs> you, you 
gotta love it, especially in that that moment near the climax where she's shooting all the ghosts with a gun in each hand in that battle on the streets of New York. And um, I mean, the humor was all great for me. The concept was fine. The acting was fun. Um, I did find that it was different from the first film in that it wasn't just that that pointless goofiness um, going on from that film. So not only is there this whole this backstory for the main characters and why they want to search for ghosts and so on, um, rather than them just suddenly springing into this full-fledged ghost-busting. Um, but there also seemed like some messages being at least kind of hinted at in the film um, where, where I didn't get the, the impression that there was any sort of intentional message being promoted and, or delivered in the original film at all. Um, and that, of course, that difference isn't good or bad in itself and doesn't affect, like, doesn't make it a good or bad movie in itself. Um, but it seemed like there were, of course, things being said about, you know, gender. Um, and it's, uh, something I wasn't expecting was it felt connected to me to... Uh, the discussion of, and of course the reality of um, mass shootings, uh, with the the villain who is uh, the character Rowan North, played by Neil Casey, and his plan for violent destruction that's rooted in this sense of aggrieved entitlement, and his delivery of his you know evil character speech when he's explaining his whole plan. Um, his delivery of that speech seemed to recall to me like Elliot Rogers' video. Um, and then there's a character's comment as they first see the picture of Rowan that it's always the sad, pale ones. Like, what's always, well, um, the, these people who do the shootings. Um, so that that kind of created a whole different feeling um, for me than the original. Um, but overall, I really liked the film and especially Holtzman. Uh, it's it's interesting that you mention Elliot Rogers. Um, when we were leaving the theater, I also mentioned Elliot Rogers um, to Michael, though I uh, thought less of mass shootings and, and more of men's rights activists in general, this like mm -hmm. sort of hidden knowledge, the world doesn't believe us, but they're all going to see and we're going to wake them up uh, thing. Um, yeah, I mean, as, as Elliot Rogers was also an MRA, I think we're both sort of speaking to really connected things. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, I saw that kind of being under the surface there too. Um, but I will, um, I will wait I my mean, turn. Also, also, of course, you can't destroy the skyline of New York anymore and have it be just fun. That, that just impossible now. <laughs> sure, good point, Nathan. Um, what about you? Things that come to mind. Well, it's interesting, the, the discussion of the underlying idea or the underlying social resistance of this film. I, I think that there was some of that in the 1984 film, and I think it's that sort of Harold Ramis, Animal House, Stripes, uh, you know, I get, like I was saying earlier, slobs versus snobs dynamic. Uh, and I think that, you know, there at the, the end of the 70s, the, you know, first half of the 80s, uh, there's definitely that sort of anti-establishment vibe going on there. I mean, now we look back and we just say, you know, it's a goofy comedy. But at the time, I mean, that was definitely a trend in comedy movies that you could trace. I agree with you, too, that the idea of sort of the Internet troll, uh, the misogynistic idiot, uh, is definitely at the core of the, of the North villain. Uh, he's someone who finds out about the Ghostbusters through, you know, well, I mean, mediated through mass media. So he doesn't actually know them. He doesn't actually have an encounter with them, or at least doesn't know that he's had an encounter with them, uh, but hates them because of what he hears about them at second hand. So there's definitely something going on there, just as it's no coincidence in 1984 that the person who turns destruction loose on the city is an EPA agent. Um, you know, the, the legitimate scientist is the one who ruins everything in the 1984 one, and the internet troll ruins everything in the 2016 version. Not coincidences. Uh, I really, really loved uh, Helmsworth. Uh, Kevin, uh, I, I know that, you know, some of the vitriol on the internet is directed at the fact that he's such a moron, but he's such a lovable moron <laughs> that I just can't help myself. Uh, and this is one of those places where we're going to get to some of the written reviews that we've 
um, read up on and prepared here in a little bit, but I've heard some people say that uh, he is a direct parallel with Sigourney Weaver's character in the 1984. I would no. quibble with that just a little bit because... Well, because... he's also partially Annie Potts, right? But he's really neither of them. Well, yeah, 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 but... Sigourney Weaver's character, and I'm blanking on her name, which makes me a bad Ghostbusters Dana, fan. Dana, but there is no Dana. Only Thank you, Zool. Dana. Daggum, I should have known that. At any rate, Dana is the only sane one in that movie, uh, with the possible exception of Winston Zedmore. Uh, but, you know, I mean, with, you know, Bill Murray's borderline nihilism and, you know, uh, Harold Ramis and Dan Aykroyd playing basically you know, fanatics after an idea that nobody believes. I mean, she gets a lot of the good lines in the movie because she's not nuts like they are. Uh, So in that respect, I mean, Kevin is really nothing like Dana, but he's fun precisely because he's not Dana. I mean, he really is a brainless bit of eye candy um, who, yeah, I mean, just, just overplays it so much that it, it adds to the film. The himbo, I heard him called in several places. <laughs> <laughs> that works. That works. Um, yeah, I, I really liked the Hemsworth performance. Um, I, I think that it's, it's, it's really funny. Um, I mean, we should probably at some point talk about how there are basically no competent dudes in this movie, and maybe that's a problem. Um, Were there any in 1984? Nice, nice. <laughs> All right, well, maybe we don't need to talk about it. <laughs> well, I mean, I, 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 th- I think you're right, but I mean, I think that this crop of Ghostbusters is eminently more competent than the first crop. I mean, they basically happen into their little franchise. They don't know what the heck they're doing, and they basically create a nuclear explosion in Central Park to end the movie. I mean, that's, that's not competence. <laughs> True, true. I want, one thing on this that I was wondering if you guys noticed is, you, did this reverse Bechdel, Bechdel at all? Um, or was there no point in the film where two male characters with names talk to each other about something besides a woman? I'm trying to remember. I, I think there may not be. Um, no. Uh, what's his name? Um, Gabe from The Office, whose actual name I can never remember. Um the the guy who freaks out at the house in the beginning he talks to um ed begley jr okay i couldn't remember if they actually talked to each other or not in that conversation where they're getting the good the uh the pre-ghostbusters characters to um check out the house but i'm pretty sure they do i'm pretty sure that happens okay well it does then um and Kevin talks to men on the phone, though I'm not sure that counts since he can't really wear names. Oh right, not well. I don't know. Are they Are names? He just like know. is incapable of writing them down because he's a moron. <laughs> um. Anyway, it comes close to not to not reverse Bechdeling. Yeah, it's something. It's, it's pretty close. That's true. Um. Though I feel like. The fact that the Bechdel test exists means, like, there are enough films that reverse Bechdel that we don't really need to worry about it. But uh, maybe that's just me. <laughs> no, for sure. Indeed. I, um, I'm just pointing out that if it didn't, that would be, I mean, clearly intentional and going along with what they're saying about, you know, with the recasting and the gender um, in the film. I mean, even when the mayor's meeting at the Lotus Hotel place with the diplomats, all the diplomats are women. So, so... There's mm-hmm. a, yeah, there's that. I noticed that. I think I might have like audibly said yes when I saw that all the different. <laughs> I thought that yeah. was just great. Yeah. Like, and not, yeah. not commented on, just like that is what exists. Uh, yeah, yeah, I thought that was awesome. <laughs> all right. Um, so maybe we should move on into uh, the articles now. I'm gonna go first. Um, mine is is sort of the smallest and and least uh, deep and academic. So we're gonna start there. Uh, and it's in the online version of Split Cider magazine called uh, On My Dad, Harold Ramis, and Passing the Ghostbusters Torch to a New Generation of Fans. As the title suggests, this article is written by um, Harold Ramis's daughter, Violet, um, and it is about 
uh, how she sort of had to share her childhood with um, with the Ghostbusters and with Egon um, since her dad played him, and how she didn't always really like that, but eventually uh, he convinced her that it, it was good to bring joy to people. Um, I, I wanted to quote from one part of the article that uh, that I thought was really really wonderful and nice. Um, so they're at her school and all these kids are coming up to him and like quoting lines from the movie and being super excited and she says you're not really egon i told my dad after yet another encounter with ecstatic fans don't they know that yeah baby they know he said but when people get really excited about something we don't care if it's real or not we just want to get as close to it as we can uh so that's sort of her jumping off point into um, the reaction to the new film and how um, she she really understands why people are so passionate and why they had such a strong response but she thinks that their strong response negative as it is, is largely misdirected um, and I'm going to quote some more now I'm muted. What's I up? mourn my dad's absence in this world as much if not more than anyone but for people to say that he's rolling in his grave or would have never let a female centered cast happen is insane in his personal life Harold Ramis was a kind generous gracious person professionally he was always about sharing the spotlight and making the other guy look good please stop using my dad as an excuse to hate the new Ghostbusters it degrades his memory to spew bile in his name uh, and then she ends the article by saying, uh, this is not an either or, it's a both and. Uh, you can still have wonderful memories of your childhood and, and value those things and, and make them, you know, nostalgic and rose-colored and beautiful. And you can let people like the new thing um, if they like it. This is not an either or. So I was really touched um, by this article and I, I liked her recollections of him um, as a good dad and a great guy. And I also thought she had some really nice level-headed things um, to say about what fandom does and what it should do. Um, what do you guys think about this Violet Ramus Steel article? Oh, yeah, it was you know, touching and well-written and... Um, of course, I agree that you can enjoy an original part of a franchise and yet also enjoy the added layers of further reboots or new versions. Um, and that's, I think, um, how a lot of people will be enjoying uh, this new Ghostbusters film. Um, and uh, I, and all, with all the cameos of the original cast in this new film, um, it was kind of nice to have near the beginning of the film that, that bust of Harold Ramis appearing just outside the office, uh, Aaron Gilbert's office at Columbia, uh, right at the start of the film. So that sort that of... That made me really happy when I saw that, yeah. Yeah, it was a nice touch. Nathan, what about you? Thoughts on this article? I think it was interesting, too, that she keeps an eye on the historical moment. We've been kind of talking about this before, but, you know, she talks about how 1984's Ghostbuster was kind of a, a lightning bolt on pop culture. And then when Ghostbusters 2 hit the theaters, it just wasn't as big a splash because you already had Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Michael Keaton's Batman and, you know, all of these new franchises coming out and you know, all of a sudden there were a plurality of franchises out there. And she says that the fact that anything that they would have done in the second decade of the 21st century would have been referential. And I mean, that's kind of the point of what's going on. I, I think that showed a great deal of awareness uh, of that. I, I, I guess, you know, something that we often neglect or I often neglect when I think about films is that they are occurring in a pop culture ecosystem that's not going to be identical to other, even other entities in the franchise, much less, you know, 30 year later reboots. Sure. Yeah. That's a, that's a really interesting point. Uh, okay. I think we can probably move on um, to the next piece. Um, Marie, tell us about um, Chaz Ebert's blog post. Yeah, so I read um, a, a post, it was titled, I Ain't Afraid of No Ghosts Unless They're Women, and it's from Roger, RobertEbert.com. 
uh, from Roger July. Ebert. Say that again. Oh, sorry, sorry. RogerEbert.com. <laughs> um, from July fourteenth, uh, and um, in this post, Chaz Ebert is arguing that uh, the new Ghostbusters, as she says, simply funny and fun, and that it made the right choice by presenting these all new characters in a new story rather than just reproducing the 1984 film. And she makes points that it's um, it's ridiculous to think that this film should shoulder the responsibility in any way of proving that funny women can anchor comedy films because that's not something that really needs to be proven. Um, and she also sees the token male Chris Hemworth's portrayal of that sexy but brainless secretary Kevin Beckman that we've been talking about as just a fun bit of gender-flipped satire, she calls it. Um, so it seemed that Ebert's post was largely responding to the negative or at least m much more lukewarm uh, review by Susan Vawazicina, also from July 14th uh, at rogerebert.com. And in that review, Vawazicina criticizes the film for displaying, she says, a lack of the new and the fresh, fresh which... Vawazicina attributes explicitly to the writing rather than the casting and one major criticism that Vawazicina makes is that well the, in the original you have the male ghost, Ghostbusters being allowed to just be confident in their belief in ghosts and instead she says with this film we have she geeks Wieg and McCarthy being cowed into playing misfits who were shunned by others because of their spooky interests when they were young girls and are now emotionally damaged goods trying to prove themselves right. And that's a quote from Vwazicina's review. So Ebert counters Vwazicina by celebrating the humor of the film and then offering this lineup of positive excerpts from reviews by other female writers. Um, followed by reposting an essay by Alan Silberman from the previous month on RogerEbert.com, uh, an essay in which he argues that the gendered marketing practices of the toy company Kenner Products, especially when it came to um, all the toys produced and other paraphernalia produced surrounding the, the 1980s Ghostbuster uh, merchandise, um, he argues that that was a contributing factor in this, the negative and misogynist responses that we've been seeing to the review, reboot. Um, so with the review, the reviewers that Ebert excerpts, uh, she quotes them calling the film uh, enjoyable, disposable fun, um, an easygoing, enjoyable family comedy that is not a work workhorse for arguments about gender politics. That's a first quote from Manola Dargis, a second from Anne Hornaday. Um, there's another excerpt that says that the film glows with vitality and avoids being heavy-handed or assaultive, and that's from Stephanie Zacharek. And there's also one reviewer, Tasha Robinson, who simply just celebrates Kate McKinnon stealing the show, which, yes, she does. Um, so, for her part in her own writing in this post, uh, Ebert offers only the one mild criticism uh, when she's wondering why Patty Tolan, the Leslie Jones character, couldn't have been a scientist, um, as we've been talking about earlier in this episode. So, with this post by Ebert and that review by Vuazicina that it's responding to, we have a couple points for discussion raised, possibly. Um, first... Ebert points out that the film shouldn't have the responsibility of proving that women can be funny, but I, I get the sense from her post that this film, of course, simply due to all this controversy that we've been talking about that surrounds it, is stuck with being this focus of discussion about gender and film, whether it should be or not, and that's going to go into everybody's responses to the film and the reviews of the film. Um, so it feels like there's in her post a little bit of anxiety to prove that women like this film in contrast to Vuazicina. Um And uh, she's trying to prove this through this series of excerpts from all female reviewers, although of course that quoting just from women could also be a way to uh, highlight the voices of women in this field that has, uh, and, and on the topic of this film that has so many uh, loud male voices, so that could be a creditable thing as well. So, um, 
that first point of discussion then is is there any possible way to respond to this film in its own right and to review it simply as a comedy separating it from the surrounding controversy and the questions about gender that the controversy raises or is that just impossible and should we even try to make that distinction if we can at all and then the second thing that's raised by this post is um, since we do, of course, want to talk about gender on this show, at least, uh, not just uh, not just talking about the quality of the film, but what it, what questions it raises about gender. So we have that concern raised by Wazachina in her review about the different origin story for these new Ghostbusters. Does this uh, does this origin story weaken and constrain these female characters, or is it? just another intentional part of what the film's doing in terms of commenting on gender by contrast with the original, since this different origin story, the different reception of these Ghostbusters within the world of the film perhaps points to uh, the gendered nature of that different reception and their failure to be believed and jump into this mass market kind of uh, corporation of Ghostbusting. Um, and then of course, there we going along with gender, there's a question of the Kevin Beckman character. Uh, do we just see that as just fun and or neutral um, to have that gender reversal of this, this brainless secretary stereotype? And then, of course, the third point is what we've already talked about with the portrayal of Patty Tolan um, and whether or not something else could have been done there in terms of her difference from the other characters. So, uh, what about you guys? What do you think on any of these points or, or other things raised by the Ebert post? Take one of those on, Victoria. <laughs> okay, um, I'm gonna start with the the backstory uh, question, um, which I think like why not both? Like why can't why can't they be um, nerds who who have baggage who are then motivated to take on this career that like that deals with their underlying issues like isn't that what life is isn't that what people do and and why people like make choices that they make in adult life we're all like just wanting that guy from second grade to like us right like this is why people not in a romantic way but like we all want to right wrongs from our childhood like whether we admit to it or not that is the reason why people are into things they're into or a reason why people are into things they're into like you want to belong to things you want to you know prove to yourself that people are going to think that you're valuable i i did not see why that couldn't be an empowering thing why it had to be a lessening thing i feel like it's just a fact of a lot of people's lives and like why not portray that in a movie hmm I, I think running with that point, this is something that, I, I agree, troubled me about the movie. I'm agreeing with the article, not with Victoria. Um, and and I, I think it's especially important for this film because of the, the women cast. But it's something that I saw also in the recent really weird and not entirely enjoyable uh, Alice in Wonderland movies where you take uh, the Mad Hatter and make him the emotionally damaged Hatter. Uh, it, it's a move in storytelling that I, I know it adds something, but, but, but my sense is that it takes away more than it adds. Uh, so I, I'm, it, it might just be that I'm a simple-minded soul who wants my comedies uh, not too deep, uh, but I, I didn't entirely enjoy the backstory for the Ghostbusters. But I feel like the kind of psychoanalysis you're talking about wasn't really present. Like, I feel like it's much deeper in I didn't see the Alice films. But um, the same thing happens in the Johnny Depp, Willy Wonka. Um, oh, gosh, yes. Sort of added layer of Freudian <laughs> nonsense. Um, I, I didn't think it was that deep in this so, film. Maybe I, maybe I missed it. Okay. No, I agree with you that it's not as bad as the Willy Wonka remake, which... Thank you for reminding me that exists. I'm going to be sad now. Sorry, man. <laughs> <laughs> I was okay with it as something sort of furthering the plot, um, but I didn't feel it was absolutely necessary. But not horrible either. Okay. Maria, I want to take on that question of can we separate this from the gender politics question? I'd say in the year 2016, no way. <laughs> Ain't happening. Yeah. Uh, my, my hunch is, 
and I'm going to be a little bit of a futurist here, and I'm a really bad futurist, but my hunch is that eight or ten years from now, when five- and seven-year-olds are watching the Blu-ray copies that their parents have in their wherever they keep Blu-ray copies, uh, they will probably be able to watch this without the gender baggage. Uh, in the same way that, you know, someone who encountered Ghostbusters in 1993 for the first time, you know, probably don't, those folks probably didn't have a whole lot of sense of its place in that sort of meatballs, animal house, stripes, uh, you know, genre of class-based comedy. But I, I think that right now there's just no escaping it. My hunch is because this is the way that movies tend to go when you watch it later on, there will be someone who teaches you in a freshman English class that this used to be nested in this grand conflict of gender politics. And the kids will say, oh, come on, Professor, can't we just enjoy the movie? <laughs> Let's hope that's true. Let's hope yeah. that future happens. Um... Okay, so let's let's move on again to the third article. Um, I guess Nathan, you you probably gave us a, a pretty solid uh, segue. Tell us about, hey, look, Ghostbusters didn't kill feminism. <laughs> it's interesting. the The title on the web page is "Look, the new Ghostbusters didn't kill Ghostbusters," but then the URL says the Ghostbusters didn't kill feminism, and both claims are part of the article. So uh, there's something. Uh, postmodern going on there. I'm not sure what it is, but I think that's part of what postmodernism is. Uh, this is an article by Megan Garber. She's a uh, culture critic for Atlantic.com. Uh, I unfortunately don't know if she writes for the magazine as well or not. She probably does. Uh, but in this article, she explores, first of all, the powerful internet conflict that we've been describing. And she says that it's put Ghostbusters in this impossible place where if you watch it the internet culture almost forces you either to love it entirely and to become an advocate for it without reservation or to hate it as if it were the coming of the fourth cataclysm uh, and therefore nothing good can be said about it at all at all at all uh, Megan Garber does the good service in this piece of saying well actually I mean there's a lot of ambiguity here uh, there are things that politically and aesthetically the movie does really, really well. The gender reversals that we've been talking about, uh, you know, giving us a genuinely new cast of characters. We don't simply have one-for-one one, uh, analogs to the original four Ghostbusters, but we have four new characters who are really fun. Uh, but, you know, it's not a movie without its shortcomings. You know, she says some of the jokes fall flat. She says that the, you know, sort of action movie violence doesn't really call into question the conventions of the very uh, macho action movie. It simply puts, you know, women in the roles of taking on those things. Uh, the soundtrack doesn't have any Bobby Brown in it. No, she didn't say that. That's what, That was my complaint. Uh, but in this piece, I mean, which, you know, very, very good uh, writing, I thought, very, very good points that she makes. Uh, she says that, you know, the the hope that she has for this movie is that, you know, when the internet storm moves on, you know, whenever the next female Jedi appears or, you know, uh, when they reboot Independence Day, why in the world are they rebooting Independence Day, that we can watch this movie again, maybe, and actually see that, you know, like every movie, it's going to be taking on questions in some pretty incisive ways it's going to be missing the point in in some pretty heavy-handed ways and otherwise you know it's going to be a movie and that's okay marie i mean you know you brought up all these good discussion points about yours and i didn't do that when i was prepping mine so what kinds of points of discussion do you think arise out of this one oh well, i think uh reading this article that helped to put in context a little bit of what I thought was probably going on with Chaz Ebert's response to Susan Vuazicina, um, and this with this idea of not being allowed to dislike the film um, because mm -hmm. it was 
I mean, well, Chaz Ebert was very respectful in the response to Vuazichina and pointed out that she's a very good reviewer and all that. It seemed like there's this, just this drive to say, oh, women have to really like this film because it's there's so much writing on it because of this context. Um, and I think that this article's mm-hmm. right that, of course, that's due to this part this point in time that we're at and all this all this uh internet stuff surrounding the film and um we will be able to look at it in a different way in the future we you know hopefully and um Mm -hmm. yeah and thinking of the the 1984 film i wonder if i had been an adult in the movie theaters in 1984 if i would have seen some of that perhaps a deeper message due to the particular context of the moment the way that I see some messages more going on in this film than in the 1984 film now um, because yeah we are just so embedded in our context obviously obviously yeah. so mm-hmm. I like I mm-hmm. this piece and, and Marie you make a really good point there I mean one of the really difficult things about this is that you know because we are in that moment um, I mean, it reminds me in a very different way, so I don't mean to say that they're exact parallels, but I remember uh, the public reaction to Mel Gibson's Jesus movie back in 2004, I want to say, whose name I always forget because I call it Jesus Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, The Passion of the Christ. That's the name of it. I've been calling it the wrong name so long, I forget the real name. Yours is better, though. But, you know, I mean that was really a cultural litmus test uh, because if you granted that it did anything well, you were lining up with the religious right. But if you, you know, granted that it might have some shortcomings, then you were, you know, of the other party, Uh, you know, you were an enemy. Uh, And I, I think the same vibe is going on with this film. And I appreciated you know, this Garber piece precisely for the reason that Marie just pointed out that um, if you take a critical eye to it, there are things to like and there are things to dislike, you know, like I said earlier, aesthetically as well as politically. But in the hypercharged moment, I've been afraid, I'll, I'll go ahead and admit that, I've been afraid to introduce any nuance to my response to the film. I've been one of its cheerleaders because I knew that there was a fight going on and if I stood in the middle, then both sides were going to punch me in the head. Mm-hmm. It, it has this danger of becoming one of these things where you have to either love it or hate it, depending on yeah what political side you're on, what group you're trying to belong to, um, rather than the merits of the thing itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I can agree with that. I um, I definitely exited the film more positively than I entered it um, I, I guess I can say now um, that the only person in this film that I was a huge fan of probably still um, going into it was McKinnon um, I, I don't like Jones on SNL um, I am still mad at Kristen Wiig for her horribly ableist um Lawrence Welk sketch where the entire joke is uh, she has a withered hand um, and uh, and a mental disability. Still upset about that ableism um, and and can't like I, I will never like Kristen Wiig because I just can't get past that. Um, and I I haven't really liked Melissa McCarthy since Gilmore Girls because I I feel like her humor now is all. Um, all um hey look it's funny when women do raunchy things uh and also hey the fat (laughs) lady fell down um and and i i don't like either of those things i don't think they're very funny um so i i did not expect to like this movie um i didn't want to do this podcast episode initially um I, i felt like it probably wasn't necessary until the cultural yelling got so loud that I felt like we had to address it, um, which I think speaks to what, what you guys were saying about this sort of two-sided mm-hmm. uh, discussion. And, le- and listeners, what Victoria is saying here is that I dragged her into the Ghostbusters just like I dragged the Christian humanists <laughs> into it. <laughs> I'm really that obnoxious. No, it's okay. <laughs> I still love you and Ghostbusters. <laughs> uh, and your responses to the actors based on their their past work just 
shows you know how much we're in the context and everything's so contextually related in terms of our you know our responses to this film as well because i mean i've not watched much of anything from any of the four before and um, i mean i liked them oh fine. goodness I, I know i've seen melissa mccarthy in something i've seen probably kristen wig in like some sketch sometime but i've not watched much <laughs> so McKinnon is the best thing SNL's got going right now. She, uh, her, her recurring characters are all amazing. She's, she's just so good. Well, I might start watching that just for McKinnon then, because I loved her in this film. <laughs> um, and I, I fully admit that my dislike of Leslie Jones um, is, is because she is loud and brash and... Uh, and too outspoken, and that that is probably a little bit of internalized sexism that I should deal with. So I'm gonna admit that. I, I, I know I missed my opportunity earlier to talk about this moment in the film, but what did you two think about the the very brief uh, exorcism that uh, that you know Leslie Jones's character performs? Uh, I mean, I, I I'll admit I was sweating a little bit. I started looking around the theater for. Uh, my fellow Emmanuel faculty, because I'm like, oh, they're making Pentecostal jokes. Yeah, I was, I cringed a little <laughs> bit at that. Like, oh, we're really making the black woman like do the weird churchy thing. Yeah, that was that was a little. The, mm. the devil is a liar. I'm like, oh Lord, have mercy. Um, I... <laughs> and I didn't even, I didn't even think of that. I was just thinking of like, oh, they're referencing like exorcism movies or something. But now that you say that, okay, okay, there's a, um, that's yeah, a little problematic. okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm the one who te- teaches at a Pentecostal college. I, I, I forget sometimes. I, I totally got the Pentecostalism <laughs> thing. I, I don't sense. think it was just. You. Okay. Um. All right, gang. Are we ready to transition into recommendations? I am. All right, let's do it. Uh, let's see. Marie, you're up first. What do you got for us? Okay, well, I'm going to recommend a documentary uh, by Jennifer Sable Newsom called The Mask You Live In. It's from 2015. And um, it's a companion, I believe, to her earlier documentary, Misrepresentation. Um, and... The Mask You Live In talks about um, what she sees as these negative effects on boys and men of the way we as a society police and constrain um, the performance of masculinity um, and the way we've set up this idea of masculinity that discourages the expression of many kinds of emotion uh, while encouraging violence um, and also encouraging a sense of entitlement entitlement to power money and women especially um, that is really unrealistic and um, set up in contrast with uh, women being viewed as lesser and negative um, so the, the documentary as a whole, like misrepresentation, is, is at some points um, pretty simplistic, and I'm also not sure I agree with all of its points, especially when it comes to uh, the way both documentaries together are advocating an increase in government censorship of media. Um, but the documentary does make an important point in relation to mass shootings, and that's why I thought of it in connection with this film, um, that there is this gender aspect involved, and that there are really way 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 more mass shootings committed by men than by women and the documentary suggests this may have something to do uh, in part with that encouragement of violence as this desirable masculine response and that in combination with setting up this unrealistic feeling of entitlement um, so I mean of course there's a whole lot more than just this the negative effects of this cultural inculcation of this constrained view of masculinity going on with mass shootings um, like a whole lot more of course but it is sort of one possible element and I think that's a point that the, the Ghostbusters film was possibly making as well in its portrayal of uh, that North character um, and both mm-hmm. the mask you live in and misrepresentation are worth you know, a watch at least even if you don't agree with all of the uh, sort of the thrust of the argument regarding censorship 
Yeah, a lot of people I know have been watching that recently, and I um, I, I did like misrepresentation, though I, I share your censorship concerns. Um, I used it in, in several classes a few years ago, and it, it teaches pretty well, uh, so I'll, I'll have to check out The Mask You Live In as well. Nathan? Yeah, I've been using clips from both of them in a composition class with a focus on gender and embodiment that I'm doing this summer semester, so that's why I had them in mind, too. Cool. Nathan, how about you? What do you got? This is my first Christian feminist podcast, and thank you for inviting me, both of you, uh, or whichever of you didn't invite me for tolerating me. Uh, so I want to recommend my favorite book of feminist theology. Uh, it is Elizabeth Johnson's She Who Is. This is a book that right around 12 years ago I read for the first time, and this book is great because it reframes the question of theology. She emphasizes its metaphorical character, its poetic character, uh, the fact that it belongs to an ongoing community of faith. And out of that framework, she builds this way of talking about God that allows for Christian theology to be faithful to the ongoing and long-running Christian tradition. For me, because I am, you know, both a, a rhetoric and composition person, so I'm very interested in metaphors and such, and because I'm a traditionalist at heart, this is the book that convinced me 12 years ago that I need to read more feminist theology, that I need to be a better feminist theologian when I do theology. It's a book that I would recommend to anyone. It's one that, you know, I read after I had graduated seminary, but the language is not so dense with jargon that only a seminary grad could read it. She Who Is is a book that really should revolutionize the way that you think about theology, and it's what I recommend. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that with us, Nathan. Um, I'm a huge Elizabeth Johnson fan, and uh, we should probably do an episode on her work at some point. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad you recommended that. Uh, so I'm going to take us back to Ghostbusters for a minute um, and recommend something that is, is light but just was incredibly uh, encouraging to me when I saw it. Uh, and it is a tweet from Jillian Anderson of X-Files fame. Uh, she tweeted Kate McKinnon. Uh, the tweet says, Kate McKinnon, we have something in common, and it's not slimy green things. And attached uh, to the tweet is a picture of Kate McKinnon dressed as uh, Scully from X-Files with the badge and the wig and the jacket and the whole thing. <laughs> it's adorable. And, uh, so small. <laughs> and it's hashtagged, the future is female, um, which is actually... Uh, a slogan um, connected to New York's oldest feminist bookstore, um, but has, has kind of been um, adopted as a slogan of the feminist representation movement, the idea that women need to see other women in powerful positions, um, which is something listeners to this show know that I believe in very strongly. Um, and and um, since the film has come out and I've seen pictures of um, adorable little girls uh, in Ghostbusters uniforms, uh, it's just, it's so great. Uh, everybody go look at this tweet of tiny Kate McKinnon as uh, Dana Scully. And I think that is going to wrap us up. Thanks for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have a topic or a reading recommendation for a future show, or if you just want to say hi, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page and get show notes from this and other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison, and Amberly Copeland is our intern. For Nathan Gilmore and Marie Hawes, I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. Tune in in two weeks when we will discuss how we read the Apostle Paul as Christian feminists. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things, love. <laughs>